January 1956, before your time, I was one years old. Um, five Christian missionaries were murdered in South America. You probably don't remember the account. Uh, some of you may know some of the history. Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, Ed McCullough, Pete Fleming, and Jim Elliott. They were seeking to contact and evangelize a Stone Age tribe known as the Aka Indians in Ecuador. The tribe was known for its hostility and the Indians speared and hacked the five men to death. Nate Saint's son, Steve, was only five years old at the time, and he remembers, his strongest memory was losing not only his dad, but his hero. You know how it is when you're young. Boy, your father is often your hero. Now Steve Saint is in his 70s, and he sometimes speaks to Christian groups. Once after speaking to a group and telling them that God had not merely allowed the deaths of his father and fellow missionaries, but God had planned it. Now, there was a man in the audience that took exception to this. He came up to Steve and he said, don't you ever say that about my God again. <laughs> some, of those, some of you have been Christians for a while. You understand what that means. I've been a pastor for a while and I get this sometimes. What they're actually saying is, don't you talk about the God in my head like that ever again. We understand the biblical God, as is often said, we know what he's like. We don't always know what he's going to do. And his ways are mysterious. But what we see many times in the modern church is those who have a pseudo Christ in their head. False God, a denominational God that really doesn't match up with what Scripture has to say. Steve Saint responds this way, Don't anybody tell me that this can't be. If God could plan the death of His own righteous Son, why could He not plan the death of my Father? Well, of course He could. God says, I kill and I make alive. This is His business, right? He does it. He gives us life and He takes it. This is His prerogative. He does it on His time frame. Not on ours. Steve makes a compelling argument, just simply quoting Acts chapter 2. Jesus was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Read your Bibles. Our days are numbered and they are ordained as Psalm 139.16 says. So I don't think any biblically literate Christian has a problem with any of this. It's just those who don't study their Bibles and sit in weak churches. Death is like everything else in this life. You and I tend to interpret it by our own shallow criteria, right? We tend to see things in our limited, fallen, sinful, self-absorbed perspective. You heard me read the psalm um, earlier. Precious in the sight of God is the death of His godly ones. Have you ever thought that death has something to do with the pleasure of God? Amen? Can we not afford God the opportunity to have pleasure in the death of His children? He was ready to bring His five, missionary, his five missionaries home, and He did it. Can you imagine their joy? Do you think they would come back? Do you think they would come back? No way are they coming back. 
You know, people used to ask me, Jim, are you ready to go? And I'd always say, I know I've told you this before, I'd always say, I just want to preach one more time, and I stopped saying that. I don't say that anymore. This is an insult to Christ for me to say, oh, I'd like to hang around earth a little bit longer and preach another sermon. That's an insult to who he is. He is so, yeah, fantastically glorious. Yes, I'm ready to go. And everybody in this room needs to feel the same way. I am ready to go. I am ready to look him in the eye. I'm ready to fall down before him in worship. I am ready, you know, with the, the myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands to worship King Jesus. Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Steve Saint writes, why is it that we want every chapter to be good when God promises that only in the last chapter will God make sense of all the other chapters? This is good counsel. I'm going to read it again. This is good counsel. Listen to him. Why is it that we want every chapter to be good when God promises only that in the last chapter will God make sense of all other chapters? This is, this is profound wisdom. He's right. God never promises us a run through the park with a bouquet of balloons. That's not what the Bible talks about. It's not how the Bible talks about believing and following Christ. And obviously, it's not how the church should talk about it. God never promises complete understanding of all that transpires in time. He never does. You know why? One reason is he would expect that we would simply trust him with it, right? Instead of questioning God, he would expect that we, as his children, would simply trust him. This is the root of faith. Trust is the root meaning of what it means to have faith in God. I trust him explicitly. Whether I live or die, you know, fat or lean, trial or blessing, it doesn't matter. He's still God. It's what we're going to see in the text, right? Some perished by the sword, some, were, some escaped by the sword. By faith, both happened. It's important that we get this and understand it. Just by way of review, we've been looking through Hebrews 11. We saw verse 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And we boiled that down to God is the substance of things hoped for. God is the evidence of things not seen. He is the object of our faith. Verse 6, without faith it is impossible to please Him. We've seen this. We've talked about it. The verse that rocked my world and He used to change my life. We must not only believe that He's God, we must believe that He's good. As I mentioned earlier, then God gives us 16 named illustrations. And if you add the prophets in individually, it's another 15 or 16. <laughs> He doesn't want you to mess this up. We're not supposed to mess up Hebrews 11, right? It's quite obvious. We have named illustrations. We've also seen that there's a progression or maturing of faith that naturally overlays this whole chapter. Verses 7 to 12, we see that God in His Word initiates faith. God warned Noah. God called Abraham. God promised Sarah. In verses 13 to 19, we see um, that if real faith resides in the heart, it manifests itself in the life. It always spills out. This is the way I talk about it. We've talked about this many 
many times. Real saving faith in the heart creates a seeker of God, a pursuer of God. And that will be evidenced in your life, not just in your thoughts and in, you know, your meditations. It will, it will animate your whole life, your family life, your work life, your social life. It animates all of life. And you remember <laughs> these heaven seekers, right? We talked about that. These men and women who were seeking heaven. You can't miss that in the middle verses of, of chapter 11 of Hebrews. And you remember what God says in verse 16, I am not ashamed to be called their God. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? Don't you want to show up on the last day? <laughs> God's not ashamed to be called your God. You believed him. You trusted him. You lived it out. Right? You lived it out. In verses 29, pardon me, 23 and 29 through 29, uh, we saw that genuine biblical saving faith makes hard decisions to obey God in hard obedience. We talked about Moses last week. This was not an easy call for Moses. In fact, we saw him try to excuse himself a number of times. God says, I am. That should be enough for you, right? I am. And he sends Moses, God sends Moses to stand before the most powerful king in the region, if not the world, with a stick. I am. You know what? I think if the modern church could just plumb the depths of I am, a lot of lives would be changed. I'm God. Of course, I'll bring my people out of Egypt. Of course, I'm God. Of course, Sarah will have a son. I'm God. Of course, Noah will build the ark. I'm God. Of course, Abraham's going to follow me and he's going to sacrifice his son as I command. But then I'll save him. Of course, this happens. This is what happens with my people. This happens with my people. This is how they live. It's Hebrews 11. You can't escape it. You cannot escape it. This week we'll see in verses 30 to 38 that genuine biblical saving faith knows God is... Listen, I want you to get this. If you don't understand this, you've not understood who God is. You've not understand the, you know, the, shall we say, the foundation of what your faith must rest upon. Genuine biblical saving faith knows that God is beautiful enough desirable enough and compelling enough to not only live for, but to die for. Could you ever in your wildest imaginations see yourself being martyred for Christ? I don't know. Do you, think, do you ever think like that? I know we live in the West. I know, I know it's safe, more or less. It's getting less and less safe for those who are vocal in the world, even the most superficial read of Scripture discredits the phony health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Sometimes God's people exercise true believing, trusting, obeying faith, and they suffer immensely for it. You can't name it and claim it. You can't name and claim your way out of that. You, your word of faith is not going to get you out of martyrdom or get you out of 
you know, whatever the, the persecution may be. Sometimes Christians are murdered in the most heinous way. And we're learning from the Bible, it's not because they lacked faith, it's because they had faith that got them into that predicament to begin with. This prosperity stuff, mama mia. It's a, it's a plague. It is a plague in the church. David says, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. And not only that, my life will praise you. That's one of the principal takeaways of Hebrews 11. It's the confession of all born-again believers. God, you're better than life. You're better than life. You're better than prosperity. You're better than health. You're better than wealth. You're better than family. You're better than career. You're better than a pile of money. God, you're better than everything. You're better. This is one of the principal problems with health, wealth, and prosperity. It focuses on blessing rather than the one who blesses. It's a stench in the nostrils of God, no doubt. Real Christians enjoy this life. We are the happiest people on the planet. We know God. And we know that God is better than this life. And as one theologian said, he who has God and everything else in the world has no more than he who has God only. I, I want you to understand this. He who has God and everything else in the world has no more than he who has God only. This is the declaration of a true believer. So let me say that this way. Let me sum this up. Real Christians don't follow Christ for the blessing. We follow him because he's God. He's beautiful, he's fascinating, he's irresistibly desirable. There's a love affair going on here. And if your Christianity is not a love affair, it's not Christianity. It's something else. God is the satisfier of the souls of his people. He satisfies their soul, whether he delivers them or gives them over to death. He satisfies their soul. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. In fact, those who are martyred get a better resurrection. Did you notice? <laughs> Did you notice in verse 35? They get a better resurrection. Listen, again, it's easy for us to talk about martyrdom. None of us are ever going to be martyred, most likely. Unless our cultures take a, a dramatic turn for the worst, which they are doing anyway. But we talked a little bit about it last week. God will meet you there. Whatever your need is. You know, Moses suffered, uh, he, he endured ill treatment. We saw that text last week. He endured ill treatment. Whether it's just ill treatment or martyrdom, it doesn't matter. God's enough. God will satisfy our souls. So let's look at the remaining text here. We see here in verses 30 and 31, God's bringing up the walls of Jericho and Rahab the harlot. Um, as we know, the, the Exodus Jews came into the promised land. We see the biblical truth that true faith begets true courage. Now, we know Jericho was a massive fortress city. There's no way the Jews could take the city apart from God's plan. What was God's plan? Anybody remember? 
Anybody remember God's plan? March around some, blow some horns and shout. This is not, this is not an awe-inspiring plan. Does God need men to march around, blow some horns and shout? What is He teaching them? Just go do what I say. doesn't matter what you think about it. You just go do what I say. If you go do what I say, I'll show up. This is a simple lesson, right? Just go do what I say. It doesn't make any sense to you. It doesn't matter. Just go do what I say. Yeah, I cannot tell you how many Christians I've counseled. And they can't make sense of something going on in their life. And, they can't. and I say, well, just obey God. Just, just obey God. Nowhere in Scripture does it say you're supposed to figure it out first. Just obey God. It's not hard. It's not complicated. It made me think of the Gideon thing. You know, 300 guys with torches, pitchers, and trumpets outnumbered 450 to 1. It made no sense. Does God need, does God need the, the 300 guys and the torches and the, and the pitchers and the trumpets? God is teaching His people to show up. Show up. Be a man. Be a woman. Show up. I am. Can I say, and the goosebumps are happening. Can I say, some of you don't know I am is I am. Some of you don't live like I am is I am. God is showing us by these simple examples in the Old Testament. You have to show up. God will take care of the rest. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And I want to say this about faith. I love this about God. He gives us what He asks. Who gives faith? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. God does. God gives faith. And He is the omnipotent object of that faith. So all that's left for us to do is show up. Do you have any anticipation about how God might call you to show up? Do you think like this? Do you think, you know, I had a man, I, I, a man that I knew very well. In his 70s, his whole life blew up. Okay? In a good way. God changed it dramatically. And I, I'm thinking, I don't know what God will do. I, I'm 67. I don't know what God will do with me, you know, in my next few years. I have no idea. But I do have a little bit of an anticipation. It might be much bigger than I could ever imagine. Even if it's just in my heart. Even if you can't see it. Even if it's just in my heart and mind. And I'm getting, you know, deeper revelation and deeper intimacy with God. You know, you don't have to see it. It doesn't have to be acknowledged by, by the world. God's always doing great things in the hearts of his people. So we see Rahab being mentioned here. Rahab the harlot. Don't you love this? This prostitute is in Hebrews 11, what is called the Hall of Fame of Faith. So I want you to see this. I know why she's in here. There could be a, a number of reasons. But the Lord showed me one that I thought was pretty cool. This is how faith, this is how far a little faith and courage will take one in God's economy. You know the story of Rahab. 
She's the mother of Boaz who married Ruth, the great-great-grandmother of King David. And there's Rahab listed in the legal genealogy of Jesus Christ, Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. You have no idea what your exercised faith will mean going forward. You have no idea. You have no idea. Rahab's a prostitute. But she believed. And she trusted. And she acted. She's in the genealogy of Christ. She's in the Hall of Fame of Faith. Do you see how far reaching a little faith in showing up can be? <laughs> There's a Gentile Canaanite prostitute listed in Matthew chapter 1. Don't you love this about God? <laughs> I love this about God. Whether he's choosing a patriarch or a prostitute to be his, right? It's his business. It is his business. This is how God delights in exercised faith. So I'm going to ask you, do you have faith in I am? Are you showing up? Is your faith one that could be called an exercised faith? Verses 32 to 34. Uh, I won't read the text. I, I've already read it. But we see here in verse 32 that the, the writer says, well, I don't have time to talk about all these guys individually. So he's, he kind of lumps them up in summary fashion is how he does it. And he says, you know, this is what exercised faith looks like. It's what we're doing looks like. It's conspicuous in the life. And we see how faith unleashes the power of God as God in his perfect sovereign wisdom and purpose miraculously intervenes for his people to deliver them and to give them victory. It's right there in the text. They conquered, they obtained promises, they shut the mouths of lions, they quenched the power of fire, they escaped the edge of the sword, they became mighty in war, women received their dead by resurrection. Their lives and deeds are a mighty testament to the reality and power of God. The world saw in their lives that I am does whatever he pleases. It doesn't matter how outnumbered he is. <laughs> it never matters. He does what he pleases. He's I am. You're going to take Jericho? I am. Yeah. You're going to take the promised land? I am. I am going to take the promised land. I am will. I am is our God. He does whatever he pleases. Do you see and hear the reality and the power of God in the lives of His people? I agree. We don't have time to deal with all of these people, but let's pull David out. You know the story. It's one of my favorites. Everybody loves... How can you not love David and Goliath? You guys know Goliath was a he was three meters tall. He wore armor that was 57 kilos. His, his spear alone weighed 14 kilos. 1 Samuel 17, 11 tells us, King Saul and all the army of Israel were, were dismayed and afraid. <laughs> David says, verse 26 of 1 Samuel 17, Who 
is this uncircumcised Philistine who taunts the armies of I am, right? He's indignant. You're going to let that guy insult God? Really? You're, his, you're God's army and you're going to let that happen? You've got to love this little kid. David says, let no man's heart fail on account of him. I will go. I will fight him. And this boy faced off this armor-plated giant with a slingshot. And David said to Goliath, I come to you in the name of the Lord. Don't you love this? <laughs> this is how God expects you and I to face down the challenges of life. Whatever your giant is, right? I come to you in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, whom you have taunted this day, and the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will remove your head. And then he said this, I love this, and this is what you're supposed to take away from Hebrews 11, at least one, of the, one important point. Why did David do it? Why did he do it? What was the core reason? He says that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Listen, all the earth is supposed to know that there's a God in the church, right? And we're not, you know, just a bunch of narcissists hoping to get a new blessing. That we're here to do God's business, right? We're here to make his name great. I've only got a few moments left on the planet. How can I make his name great? How can I be used to make his name great? Beloved, I, I pray that this is part of your, your, your calculus. Not that I just want to get through the next day or the next week or the next month or get to retirement. I pray that we're thinking like this. God gets famous in the lives of his children. It's one of the important truths of Hebrews 11. You know, it's one of the things you may not remember. Back when we went through the Dangerous God sermon series, it was one of the things we saw in his judgment, right? He said, the whole world will know. The whole world's supposed to know he's God in your life, and the whole world's supposed to know that God is God when he judges. He says, the whole world will know. Everyone will know. You will know that I am the Lord your God. And God is calling you and me to live this way, that our household, our workplace, our neighborhood, our school will know that there is a God and His name is I Am. And so here's an important, important part of Hebrews 11. The Holy Spirit turns a corner in verse 35. You heard me read the text. We had all this victory, right? And all this deliverance. And, you know... All this conquering going on, shutting the mouths of lying and quenching the power of fire and escaping the edge of the sword. All of this is going on. And then we get to verse 35 and suddenly we're being tortured, not accepting their release in order that they may obtain a better resurrection. And the others experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. And they were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Oh, wait a minute. What happened to the name and claim it stuff? Why didn't they name it and claim it? Why are, they, why are they being stoned and sawn in two and put to death? 
Why are they destitute and afflicted and ill-treated? Because they loved God and they spoke up for him. And listen, sometimes it goes south when you speak up for him in terms of this life. We are not always delivered in a temporal sense. And if you've been taught that, you've been taught a lie. We are not always delivered in a temporal sense. We are always delivered ultimately in an eternal sense. I'm just going to go back to the text. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were put to death. They went about in sheepskins. They were destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. They were wandering in the deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They were tortured. They, they experienced mockings and scourgings and chains and imprisonment. No word of faith. No name and claim it. So there's an important lesson here for us. By faith, there's victories. Verses 34 to 30, 33 and 34. And by faith, there is suffering and defeat in a temporal sense. Both, both happen by faith. Now, this last group here that suffered, it's not because they didn't have enough faith. It's because they actually lived their faith in such a way that God honors them in this chapter. These sufferings came by faith, not because of unbelief or lack of faith. We have to understand that. That's a huge part of the chapter. You're supposed to get this, right? You're supposed to get this. So, by faith, victory and deliverance, verse 33 to 34, and by faith, suffering and death, 35 to 38. Another way to see this is look down in verse 39. You got this whole list of guys you got a list of deliverance, then you got a list of those who suffered, right? And look at verse 39. And all these, without a break, he's including all of them. He said, all of these having gained approval through their faith, they suffered because of their faith. And they, they were tortured and murdered because of their faith. It wasn't because they lacked it, it was because they had it and they exercised it. And the world came after them and God allowed it. God allowed it. One of the best ways to see it, and we talked about this last week, verse 34. Some escaped the, the edge of the sword. Verse 37, some were put to death by the edge of the sword. You can't, you, you can't miss it. God, does, God is doing both things. God is doing both things. It's his prerogative. We need to see this. The suffering, misery, torture, imprisonments, and deaths were not owing to God's disapproval or their lack of faith, but rather to His perfect, sovereign plan to be magnified in the martyrdom of His people. God in His perfect wisdom decides when to deliver His people from suffering and when to sustain them in the midst of the suffering. 
And he's so beautiful. He's so compelling. He's so wonderful. He can sustain his people in the midst of the most heinous suffering. He can do it. He's I am and he gives himself away. You remember Stephen. Stephen saw Jesus at the right hand of God. I don't think he felt one stone. I think we talked about that last week. That's just what I surmise. So this is basic Christianity. That believing, trusting, and obeying God when your circumstances are screaming that he's not paying attention, right? We understand that he is and he's doing something beyond our understanding. And oh, guess what? We're okay with that. God's doing something beyond my understanding right now. I'm okay with that. I'm good with that. God, do whatever you want. He's going to anyway. You might as well get on board. Amen? He's going to do whatever his will is, his perfect will is in your life. You might as well get on board. You might as well. I, as a pastor, you know, and you talk to people, and it's like, it's like come on, man. We're, we're back to Hebrews 11.6. I believe he's God, but I, I'm not sure he's good. You know. He is good. I want you to see this. This is beautiful stuff here. The people he delivered. In their faith, God displayed his raw power to deliver his people. In verses 35 and 38, in the faith of his people, God displayed, I love this, his utter sufficiency for them. His power wasn't on display in their life. His sufficiency was on display in their life. Oh, you're going to martyr me? Have a good time. Come on. Right? My God is sufficient for me in death and in everything less than that. My God is sufficient for me. God puts on display how he satisfies his people under severe duress. He satisfies their souls. It's a big deal, beloved. Their sufferings are a mighty testament to the reality and power of Jesus Christ. The world saw in their sufferings that God uh, was all they needed and wanted. He is their preeminent treasure and satisfaction. If he's not your preeminent treasure and satisfaction, you cannot, you cannot persevere through persecution. You won't do it. It can't be a religious thing once the knives come out. It has to be a heart thing. It has to be a relationship thing. It has to be an intimacy thing. What does real faith believe in the moment of torture? That if God loved me, he'd get me out? No. That's not what real faith believes. Real faith believes that God is better than the miracle of escape. Right? If God puts me through this, it's better. This, this suffering for a better resurrection is better than the miracle of escape. I don't have to have escape. I have I am. I don't need escape. I have I am. Yeah, this is, this is basic Christianity. Yeah, it is. In one sense, it's basic. But, you know, it's, it's taking us out into the deep water to what it really means to say that we're a follower of Christ. 
Those who suffered their lives are shouting that God is sweeter than all the momentary afflictions of life. When you have it all, faith says God is better. When you lose it all, faith says God is better. Saving faith knows this to be true about God. He is beautiful, desirable, compelling, and captivating enough to live for and to die for. Piper says it well, and I, I steal this all the time, and sometimes I don't give him credit, but this is where I got it. God is better than anything this life can give, and God is better than anything death can take. So, for those of you who don't know Steve Saint's story and, and the others involved in the martyrdom, this is how God used that martyrdom. You know, when something tragic happens, are you one of those who blame God or whine to God or question God? You know, some, some pastors will tell you, oh, it's okay to question God. I say, don't ever do it. Don't ever do it. Guess what? He knows better than you. Guess what? He knows the end from the beginning. Don't question Him. Get on your face and worship Him. Don't question God. Now, you go find some other pastor, he'll say, oh, yeah, it's okay. You can sort it out with God. Yeah, right. This is how God used the martyrdom of those five men. Steve Saint's aunt, whose name is Rachel, and Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, some of you have heard her name, they ultimately went and lived with the Aka Indians, and they evangelized them in the tribe was more or less converted. Missionary applications greatly increased uh, when uh, the word of the martyrdom uh, hit the newspapers. God used this incident to move the hearts of tens of thousands of young people to become missionaries. You're going to love this last point. Minke, one of the Akas who killed the missionaries ultimately became the adopted grandfather of Steve Saint's children, and they call him Pop. What was God doing? Something way bigger than anyone imagined. And this is the way we're supposed to think, right? When the torture comes, when the ill treatment comes... This is how we're supposed to think. God's doing something bigger than I can understand. I trust Him. Basta. I trust Him. That's it. I trust Him. This is how Steve Saint talks about what God has done through the martyrdom of his dad and the others. He says, countless lives have been impacted. He says, don't tell me God wasn't sovereign in the death of my father. And I love this. He says, if I had to change it, I would not change it. Don't you love that? Do you trust God like that? This is what real faith does. It loves and trusts God through the pain and the tears. When things don't make sense, when the heartache is unrelenting. The famous illustration, of course, is this. You guys know what a tapestry is. You've, you've seen under the tapestry, right? You guys, tapestry, beautiful You've looked under the tapestry and it's chaos. It looks like utter chaos. 
But God is operating, God is, 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 is creating a masterpiece, right? The tapestry is a masterpiece, whether you like it or not, whether you understand it or not. And let me close with this quote from Piper. One of my all-time favorite quotes from Johnny Piper. <clears throat> Faith is utterly in love with all that God will be for us beyond the grave. Faith loves God more than life. Faith loves God more than family. Faith loves God more than job, money, dream houses, and retirement. Faith says, whether God handles me tenderly or gives me over to torture, I love him. He is my reward. This is what I want you to take away from these, these last 10 verses in Hebrews 11. He has to be your reward. He has to be your treasure. He has to be your delight. It's what real faith is. If, if that's not true, then you have some kind of cheap imitation kind of faith. Real faith loves God supremely and treasures Him supremely and adores Him. It's why the men and women of Hebrews 11 could suffer as they did and God says of such men and women, the world is not worthy of them, verse 38. And he says, I am not ashamed to be their God, verse 16. Hebrews 11, got to love it. Let's pray together.